0: We are looking at Luke chapter 10. We're going to begin in verse 1, and we're going to read down to verse 24 this morning, Luke 10, 1 through 24, and you'll find that on page 868 if you're using a copy of the Church Bible. I know that you're going to find it helpful to have your own copy of Scripture open and to be reading along with me this morning. And let me just very briefly pray for us again uh, as we cast ourselves in the Lord for his blessing on the preaching of the word this morning. Father in heaven, again, we cry out to you as children, to their father, as those who have nothing, to one who has everything to give. We come uh, begging for bread. We are beggars, our God, and we pray that you would give us the bread from heaven, that you would feed us with the Lord Jesus this morning, that you would make us very attentive, that you would instruct us, that you would enlighten us that you would send out your word with great power and clarity and conviction and encouragement and edification that we would be changed and that you would use us and that we would worship you and know you and commune with you more because of the work that you have done in us, because of the work you have done through Christ. And so, our God, we pray above all things that you make us to hear and see the Lord Jesus this morning and know more of his saving grace and the work that he has accomplished for us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Luke 10, beginning in verse 1. Luke now says, After this the Lord appointed seventy-two others and sent them on ahead of him, two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to go. And he said to them, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few." Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go your way. Behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. Whatever house you enter, first say, Peace be to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you. And remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide, for the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go house to house. Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you, heal the sick in it. Say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. But whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into its streets and say, even the dust of your town that clings to your feet, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable in the judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You shall be brought down to Hades. The one who hears you, hears me. The one who rejects you, rejects me. The one who rejects me, rejects him who sent me. The 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the powers of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. In the same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows Who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Then turning to the disciples, he said privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. The grass withers, and the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. Well, one of the great misconceptions In church history is that regarding John Calvin. There have been many who have falsely claimed that John Calvin and his doctrine, uh, what we call Calvinism, is antithetical to evangelism. There have been many who have said that um, no greater harm, and this is a direct quote from a well-known theologian, no greater harm has been done to the cause of evangelism throughout the centuries than that caused by Calvinism. Now what's ironic about that is John Calvin arrives in Geneva 1536 he leaves geneva in 1538 he comes back to geneva in 1541 and he begins the work of reformation there in that city of preaching and teaching and training and discipling and mentoring and as god blessed that work and the spirit of god moved in that place and as the ministry of the preaching of the word and the gospel especially started expanding out john calvin uh, began planning churches and within five years of his labors, of beginning the work of church planning, five churches had been planted. And then uh, in several years after that, a hundred churches had been planted. And within nine years of beginning the work of church planning in France, 2,000 congregations had been planted out of Geneva and from the ministry of John Calvin. I I want that to sink in. I've been here nine years. I've planted one church. I am no John Calvin. That is clear. That's why we talk about John Calvin a lot. Um, nine years, 2,000 congregations, faithful congregations, without gimmicks, preaching the unadulterated word of God all throughout France because John Calvin understood the nature of Scripture's teaching on the mission of God and the call of God for his church to be an evangelistic church and his people to be an evangelistic people, and for the supremacy of the gospel to triumph in the world, and that God was using the ministry of the gospel in bringing lost sinners to himself. Now, I have no doubt that John Calvin was fueled by passages like the one in front of us. It is impossible to read through the Gospels and. To hear all that Jesus teaches about the evangelistic mission of the church. Jesus himself was an evangelist. Uh, You know that great saying, God had one son, and he sent him to be a missionary. And it can be said that uh, Jesus has sons and daughters, and he sends them to be missionaries. Jesus himself said, as the Father has sent me, so I send you. And we see that playing out constantly in Jesus's ministry in the Gospels. And we see it here in a passage like this so clearly The instruction that Jesus gives and the response that Jesus uh, elicits and the reaction that Jesus gives to that sending out. Now, not of the 12, as he has already done, but of 72 others to accompany the 12 as the kingdom of God is advancing in the earthly ministry of Jesus. Now, before I say anything, it's important to note that we have seen a very similar passage not that long ago where Jesus sent out the 12 and it would be very easy be very easy for you to say, well, why, why have this? It seems very repetitious. Well, this passage serves a very unique purpose. It teaches a very unique lesson. It teaches something very distinct, even from that which we have seen already with Jesus sending out the 12 not that long ago to proclaim the gospel, to heal the sick, And to call men and women to repentance. Now this morning as we look at these verses together, we are going to consider first of all Jesus' instruction for evangelistic ministry. And then secondly, we are going to see Jesus' response to the outcome of evangelistic ministry. His instruction about evangelistic ministry and his response to the outcome of evangelistic ministry. Everything in this passage is going to fit into one of those two headings. And notice this morning that as we look at this, Luke now says, after this. Now, the question you should ask is, after what? Why does Luke feel compelled to to tie together everything in verse 1 to everything that has gone before? I think the answer is very simple. Jesus has been correcting misunderstandings that the disciples have had about the nature of Christian service and what it means to be a disciple. He has gone in there and he has like a wise physician, he has dealt with the spiritual maladies in the hearts and the minds of his disciples. He has helped them to understand the nature of Christian service. He has helped them to understand that it's not about seeking to be the greatest. It's about seeking to be the least. He has helped them to understand that their spirit ought to be one in which they are longing for the salvation of others, not the destruction of others. He has helped them to, to see that being a disciple means leaving all and following him and giving yourself an unreserved commitment and devotion to him. And that is where Luke has left off in the previous chapter. And so it's natural now that Jesus is transitioning to the appointing of the 72. He has accomplished that purpose of of reiterating to his disciples what the true nature of the heart of Christian service and discipleship is. And now he is giving the instructions for evangelistic ministry. Now, uh, we are met here at the opening of this passage with that question, why 72? Um, You know, it's always a good thing for us to ask. Sometimes there's not an answer to numbers in the Bible. Sometimes a number is just a number. Sometimes there's nothing else to it. For instance, when the Apostle John tells us that Jesus caught 153 fish, Uh, after the resurrection of Jesus, when Jesus told the disciples to let down their net and they brought in 153. uh, No shortage of ink has been spilled on trying to explain significance to that. I think the answer is very simple. They caught 153 fish. That's it. That's a lot of fish. And it showed the power of Jesus. But here, I think there is a theological reason to the 72. Now, there is a textual reason Variant. Your Bible may say 70. You may say, wait a minute, is it 70 or is it 72? Well, scholars are divided and very interesting. The number 70 and the number 72 also appear oftentimes throughout redemptive history. Moses is said to have been in the wilderness with 70 or there's a variant there as well in the Hebrew text. 72 elders of Israel in the wilderness. Um, Remember when Joseph goes down into Egypt. I'm sorry, when Joseph's family comes down into Egypt, it says they they came 70 in number. Remember when the nations were multiplying in Genesis, that table of nations in Genesis 10, that we're told there were 70 nations that came out of the descendants of Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Um, There is this reiteration of the number 70 and the number 72. Um, Outside of scripture, it's very interesting that Uh, the Jews at several periods in their history believed that the world was comprised of 72 nations and the, the old Testament in Hebrew was translated into Greek, what we call the Septuagint. Uh, Sometimes you'll see it as LXX, which is the Roman numeral for 70, because it is said that 72 scholars worked to translate the Hebrew into the Greek uh, from which the apostles themselves often work the Septuagint. Now, Here's my take on why Jesus is sending out 72. Remember, he sent out 12, and we said he was reconstituting Israel 12 tribes, 12 apostles. Jesus is the new Israel. He has come to bring the kingdom of God. He is reforming and revitalizing old covenant Israel, apostate Israel. He chooses 12 apostles to be the foundation of the new covenant church, the new Israel. And in a very real sense, he is showing us that continuity between old and new covenant, centering on him as the fulfillment of all things, as the Israel of God, as the one bringing about the new Israel, raising up his church to be the new Israel of God, the new people of God of whom you are a part. That is why he chose 12 disciples. Now, very interesting, the Bible gives us multiple numbers of 12 and theological significance. In the book of Revelation, the church is often shorthanded by 144. 12 times 12 Um, Or 144,000, it is the whole church, Old and New Testament. It is a symbolic theological number denoting the complete and full number of God's elect of his people. Now, if I haven't lost you already, because this is important, 72 is a multiple of 12. Um, I believe that Jesus is multiplying his church. He is showing that in addition to the apostles, there will be other ministers who will carry on the work of the gospel. In addition to ministers, the church itself will multiply and it will carry out the Great Commission and it will fulfill the evangelistic ministry of God until Jesus has gathered together every one of his lost sheep to himself. So I think very simply, the 72 are an extension of the 12 And they are teaching us that we are included in this picture of the church scattered and the church gathering to Jesus and the work that he has called us to to do in calling men and women to himself. Now, um, we're done with our math lesson for the day. Um, I want to say this before I say anything else. As I was coming to this passage and I was thinking about my own uh, shortcomings in evangelism um, and my own missed opportunities and the times when I have feared men and not spoken as I ought and have not seized opportunities as I should and have not been zealous like I should, um, it's very easy to come to a passage like this and to sort of guilt yourself into motivation to go do better in evangelistic ministry. And I don't think that's what we should do when we come to a passage like this. Very interesting. Everything Jesus says fits together perfectly to motivate, instruct, and propel us forward in evangelistic ministry in a way that we will rely on him and depend on him and understand that he is the one doing the work through us. You see, Jesus never sends you out and never says, go, until he first says, come. I think that's why Luke says after this, the very end of chapter nine, he's saying a disciple of Jesus is someone who will come to Jesus, who will leave behind those things that they have loved and trusted in, what they have built their lives around. They will understand that those things are not lasting, that those things are really ultimately unimportant things, and they will see that the Savior is the really important one and they will come and they will trust him and they will follow him and so before Jesus gives this charge and before he says go he essentially says come he says come to me and I will give you rest for your soul come and trust me draw near to me and everything I'm about to do I am going to do with you and through you and I will be the one working and I will be the one there In the midst, guiding you and making that work accomplish the purposes for which I am sending you out to do that work. Now, um, with that in mind, that you cannot go and witness to Jesus until you have first come and trusted in Jesus, I want to say this this morning. If you have not trusted in Jesus, if you are not trusting in Jesus, do not hear me telling you you need to go and do evangelistic ministry. I have known myriads of individuals who have engaged in fervent evangelistic ministry who are no longer walking with Jesus. I have known myriads in my short life who have been fervently engaged in ministry and are no longer walking with Jesus because they never really came to Jesus. They thought, the Christian life is me going and doing and being successful in this, not my need for Christ. And Jesus is going to bring us full circle at the end of this when they come back and they say, Lord, it's amazing. The demons are subject to us in your name. And he says, rejoice that your name is written in heaven. Rejoice that you can see the things that you see. You see, Jesus is most concerned that we know him. Jesus Christ is most concerned that you're trusting him. And then once you've trusted him, he calls you to go. Now, there is is a universal obligation that Jesus does lay on the disciples. That's the first thing we see in this instruction. There is a universal obligation. Notice Jesus says to the, the, the 72 who he sends out two by two, he says, Go into every town and place where I am going. The harvest is plentiful, the laborers are few. Jesus was going everywhere. Jesus was committed to spreading the gospel throughout the world, and at this time throughout the cities of Israel. And he was utilizing his people to extend his mission. He was extending his work out by using his people, and he tells them to go into all the cities and all the villages where he was going. And there is a universal obligation For the people of God to be witnessing to the Lord Jesus everywhere that they go. It is not an option. Please hear that now that I've already taken the onus of burden off of you that that you don't need to feel guilty. It is not an option. It is an obligation. If we are Christians, we are obligated to bear witness to Jesus Christ. Here's the reality. All of us are bearing witness to Jesus in one way or another. We may be denying him by our lives and our words, even though we profess him. Or our lives and our words are bearing witness to who he is and what he's done in us and for us. Um, So all of us are already bearing witness to Jesus in one way or another. But Jesus calls every one of his people to be active in bearing witness to him, to a lost and perishing world, And it is a universal obligation that he lays on his people. Eric Alexander uh, so helpfully says, this universal obligation is precisely that. It is an obligation. It is not an option. You are a witness to Christ, whether good or bad. The obligation of all is that they should exercise the ministry of being a harvester in this world. I want to ask you this morning, do you think about yourself that way? When you think about yourself as a Christian, do you think... God has redeemed me to be a harvester in this world. That's, it. That's exactly what Jesus is saying. He's saying, I have redeemed you and called you and sent you and, and kept you in the world so that you would be a harvester of souls that I am redeeming all around. Um, and There are only three reasons you're still here if you're a Christian, <clears throat> seriously. Um, and really, there's only one. Uh, We are here to worship, we are here to witness, and we are here to walk in love, and we are going to worship for all of eternity, and we are going to walk in perfect, unbroken love and kindness and compassion and charity for all of eternity, but we will not be able to witness one second after we die. You see, Jesus lays this obligation on us to understand the gravity and the weight that he wants to use every one of his people as a harvester in this world. Now, notice that he uses that illustration, and he tells us, secondly, as he instructs his disciples about ministry here, he tells us that that the opportunities are abundant. Abundant opportunities. Universal obligation, abundant opportunities. Um, My sister called me yesterday and had been to a garage sale uh, with... Uh, my wife, and she said, Nick, the house was so big. And, and uh, I said to the, the people that own the house, you know, this is such a beautiful house. And they said, oh, this is just a little outpost for our, our business. We make, you know, a couple hundred million a year selling vitamins. Seriously. And, and I said to my sister, I said, I had a, one of those moments lapse of judgment I said there is so much money out there to be made (laughs) I mean it's growing on trees no literally it's growing on trees (laughs) it's everywhere Um, and yet we're not here for that but Jesus says the harvest of souls is plentiful they're everywhere people that he is saving are everywhere they're everywhere Souls that God has chosen and given to the Son. Souls that the Son has died for to redeem. People who are lost and perishing, who don't look as dignified as you and me. You know, I saw a girl yesterday who had all kinds of demon possession tattoos all over her. And I wanted to witness to her, and I didn't have the opportunity, but I thought, you know, she could be one of Jesus' lost sheep. And the dignified person in the quasi-Christian southern store is going to hell forever. Yes. Yes, the harvest is plentiful. Everywhere. Everywhere. Jesus is saving people. And, And notice that he says there's abundant opportunity. Calvin, and again, I told you John Calvin, I think he was motivated by a passage like this. Calvin says Jesus says this in order to stimulate His disciples, the more powerfully to apply with diligence to their work. He declares that the harvest is abundant. Hence, it follows that their labor will not be fruitless. They will find in abundance opportunities of employment and means of usefulness. You see, John Calvin sees in what Jesus says. Jesus is saying, look, they're out there. It's there. Go be fruitful. Glean. Harvest for eternity. They're there. It's plentiful. Um, There there are so many souls uh, to be saved and drawn to Christ and redeemed and converted and turned from death to life. As Calvin says, this is to stimulate us. Um, Notice that Jesus doesn't leave the disciples thinking it's up to them. I think that's a very important part of this passage. It would be very easy to extrapolate certain statements out of here. Go into all the cities, preach the gospel, the harvest is abundant, it's up to you. Jesus doesn't say the harvest is abundant, it's up to you. He says the harvest is plentiful, the laborers are few. That means in your life you're going to meet very few people who are actually deeply committed to the Lord and to the work of the ministry that he calls all of his people to, very few. The harvest is plentiful, the laborers are few. Therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest that he may send laborers out into the harvest. So how am I supposed to respond to what Jesus is saying here when I hear that the harvest is plentiful and that there are souls everywhere and that Jesus wants us to go out. He wants every member of his church to go out and to bear witness to him with those with whom they are rubbing shoulders every single day of their life. How am I supposed to respond? Jesus says, pray. That's the first, that is the first strong admonition that he gives, pray. Now, I think Jesus is saying at one and the same time, this work is utterly dependent on the sovereign working of God. That's why he says pray. You know, when I have not been witnessing and I've not been fervent in my witness for Christ, I, I sometimes stop and I think, you know, I have not been praying. And then I start to pray and then God starts to give me those opportunities Um. And then we stop praying. And then we kind of shift into self sufficiency mode. And then we realize that we're not fervent like we used to be. And then we start to pray. And it's that repetitious cycle. And Jesus is telling us look, we need to build prayer into everything we do, and especially into the work of evangelism. We should be praying. Notice what he says. Notice he says, pray earnestly. Notice verse 2, the harvest is plentiful, the laborers are few, therefore pray earnestly that the Lord of the harvest would send out laborers into his harvest. Now, I don't think this just means that we should be praying that God will raise up some guy over there and just raise up somebody to do it. I think this means we should be praying in our congregation that he raises up laborers uh, from among our children. You know, I was struck this week. I'm going to share something with you. I pray for the salvation of my children all the time because I dread the thought that they'll go to hell forever. I dread that thought. Um, And you should dread that thought about your loved ones. Um, And I pray for the salvation of my children constantly, but I have never once prayed that God would send them into full-time Christian service. And I heard a minister in a sermon on this say, are you praying that God will send every one of your children into full-time Christian service. And I thought, no, I've never prayed that. Um, I know that my dad prayed that often for me. Uh, The minister who said that in this sermon said, is it no surprise that we've seen so few people from our own congregation go out into full-time Christian service? And what he was doing was he was putting his finger on the problem. He was saying, we're not praying for this. We must be praying. Now, I don't think Jesus is saying, pray that everybody becomes a gospel minister and preaches the gospel publicly in a full-time way like teaching elders and preachers do. I think he's saying there are lots of ways in which evangelistic ministry takes place. There are those who work for Wycliffe for Bible translation. There are those missionaries on the mission field doing medical missions and sharing the gospels by vocational missionaries. There are hundreds of ways that people are engaged in Christian ministry in the fields, Um, and we ought to be praying that we and those around us, wherever God puts us, are engaged in that. You know, I think, I'm going to say this this morning, I think you should leave this place and you should say, Lord, send out laborers into the harvest and start with me. I think that's the only appropriate prayer for us to pray. As we leave this place, Lord, send out laborers into this harvest and please start with me. And make me fruitful in the harvest and give me boldness and give me eyes to see the fields. Because, you know, the reality is we see people every day and we don't think about them as eternal beings. And we don't think heaven or hell. That's it for all of us. Um, we need to pray to the Lord of the harvest earnestly. Now, notice Jesus is not uh, naive, I always love this about Jesus. He is the greatest realist who has ever walked the face of the earth. Uh, Jesus is not this naive movement starter who thinks it's going to be great, guys. I'm going to send you 72 out. Then you're going to get six more each. And then we're going to multiply even more. And then we're going to start this over here. And then we're going to do this over here. And then we're going to have six campuses down here. It's going to be awesome. Then we're going to support 2,000 missionaries here. Jesus says, listen, here's the reality. I'm sending you out as sheep, little lambs. It's actually what the Greek word is the little lambs in the midst of wolves. So it's going to be warfare. I'm enlisting you into battle. Evangelism is warfare. There's going to be opposition. It's not going to be fun. There are vicious wolves everywhere seeking to devour the lambs. Know that go into it with that mindset. It doesn't help anybody not to have that mindset. It helps us to know the opposition. It it helps us to be realist spiritually But you know what Jesus is saying? And this is remarkable. This is absolutely remarkable. What do lambs need? They need a shepherd. They need a shepherd. He's saying, I'm sending you out, and you're going to have to rely on me. And you're going to have to depend on me. And you're going to have to trust me to protect you. And you're going to have to trust me to fend off the wolves. And you're going to have to trust that I'm the shepherd leading my lambs forward in this work. Isn't that a wonderful thought? Jesus is sending us out and he's saying, I'm here with you as your shepherd. I am the great shepherd of Israel. I am the good shepherd who gives his life for the sheep. You know, here's a really amazing thought. I don't know if you've ever thought about this either. In order for Jesus to give this commission to the disciples, he has to be prospectively confident of what he is going to accomplish by his death and resurrection. So the success of what he is sending them to do is entirely dependent on what he has yet to accomplish at this point in his life and ministry. Think about that. He's sending them out. He's saying, preach the gospel, tell others the kingdom has come, tell them about the forgiveness of sins, call men to me. And the success of that and the guarantee that he will be with them is absolutely dependent on his own faith and confidence in what he is going to accomplish. Now for us, how much better that we look back and we see everything. Christ has been crucified. Christ has been risen. The shepherd has taken his life again. He says, lo, I'm with you always, even till the end of the age. We see him send the apostles out into the nations. We see the wolves surround them. We see him deliver them in the book of Acts. Everywhere they're proclaiming, everywhere he's delivering. Um, he, he makes no illusion about the hardship. But he is guaranteeing them that I, the good shepherd, am with you in this work. Now, um, I've preached for 35 minutes already. So I'm going to make one final point under this first point and we will save the rest of this for next Lord's Day. Um, Jesus now in the instructions talks about the outcome of evangelistic ministry. Now, just as he made no allusion to the fact that there would be opposition and there would be wolves, um, Jesus tells the disciples exactly what's going to happen. He says, go into every city and town. Don't take anything with you. Trust me to provide. Same word he gave the 12 before. You're going to have to trust me. You're going to have to step out in faith. When you go to do this work of evangelism, you're going to have to step out and trust me that I am going to accomplish my purposes. I'm going to provide for you. I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to shepherd you. I'm going to lead you. And I'm going to make sure that you have a place to stay. And so whatever city and town you go into, ask who in it is worthy. When you enter in there, say, peace be on this house. And if the person in it is worthy, then, then that peace rests on that house. And if not, it returns to you. He says, but whatever city and town you go into, and they do not receive you, do not go house to house, but shake the dust off your feet, because I tell you it will be more tolerable for Sodom in the day of judgment than it will be for that city. What is Jesus doing here? Jesus is telling these disciples, here's how it's going to work. You're not going to know where my lost sheep are. You're not going to know where the best gleaning in the field is. You're not going to, people, you're not going to walk around and somebody's going to have an E on their forehead for elect, an R on their forehead for reprobate. I mean, everybody's elect or reprobate, but nobody has an E or an R. Everybody looks the same. Wheat and the tare look identical. Look the same. Go out in the field. Jesus says, here's how you're going to know. Those that receive you, they're really receiving me because you're representing me. Those who receive the gospel, the peace of God is resting on that. Make that your home base. This is the beginning of church planting, as it were, in the new covenant in cities but there will be stubborn and obstinate places who will reject the gospel. And on those places, make sure that those people know if they reject me, it's going to be judgment, and it's going to be horrific judgment. And symbolize to them, by shaking the dust off your feet, that God is going to bring severe judgment on the day of judgment against every city and every person who has rejected me. Now, uh, Jesus is going to break out into this... um, pronouncement of woe on these cities, and it's very interesting. Uh, He's really stepping out in front of his disciples. He's stepping out in front of them, and he's really telling them the outcome is not up to you. This is a glorious thought, by the way, because whenever we go to do evangelistic ministry as lambs in the midst of wolves, we can become very discouraged when we are met with great opposition. We can become very discouraged when we don't see more fruit. We can become very discouraged when even whole geographical areas are rejecting Christ. But Jesus steps out in front of his disciples, and he says, look, at the end of the day, I'm the one. I'm the one who's pronouncing judgment. I'm the judge of all the earth. Everybody is going to stand before Jesus on Judgment Day. He said, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. He's everybody's end. Your life will have its terminus in front of the throne of Jesus. That's it. Jesus steps out in front of his disciples. And in a sense, he pushes them out behind him. And he says, now watch this. Woe to you, Chorazin woe to you Bethsaida because my mighty works were done in the midst of you and you didn't repent when you saw the works and you heard the gospel you heard about me you heard about a way of salvation and you hardened your heart in wickedness and unbelief and then he turns and he says what are you Tyre notice he says I'm sorry what do you Capernaum Capernaum was not quite the same as Tyre and Sidon. It wasn't a city given over to um, external wickedness, the way Tyre and Sidon were. Here was another city, and it was puffed up with pride and luxury. Uh, it It was a materialistic city. It thought, we don't need Jesus. We've got everything that we need. We've got our houses. We've got our coastal boats. It was a coastal town. And Jesus says it is going to be better for Sodom and Gomorrah on the day of judgment than for you because... You have heard, and you have seen. There is more we can unpack, and we will next Lord's Day, um, from that. But I want to say this this morning. Um, Jesus has enlisted you if he has redeemed you. He has enlisted you into service in his kingdom, and he has sent you out into the harvest, to labor um, you know we do that by evangelizing our children in the home I praise God for a wife who does that consistently when I fail to do that consistently we do that in the workplace we are to do it with our neighbors we are to do it with the the people at the grocery store that you see every day And maybe you never stop to talk to them, or maybe you just have small talk with them. And we do it by inviting them to sit under the ministry of the gospel. Um, We do it by sharing the word of God with people. We do it by deeds of mercy that accompany the ministry of the word. Um, The whole of our life is to be a witness. I want to ask you this morning, when you think about your life, and, and you profess to have been redeemed by Jesus, and if you have indeed been purchased by his blood, do you understand that he is eager to use you in calling others to him? He is eager to use you. It is astonishing to me to think about this. You are only going to meet so many people in your life. I was thinking about this this week. The the life that God has scripted for each of us. Um, He is sovereign over all of it. He has determined that you will meet so many people in your life. That you will have so many conversations. That you will have so much interaction. And that's it. He's determined all of it. And he wants us to make the best use of every conversation and every relationship and every opportunity that he gives us. And here's the glorious thing. He says, I am the one doing the work. I'm sending you out to do what I am actually doing through you. And the outcome, I'm going to determine that. And the end result is not on your shoulders. It's not. And the opposition that you'll face, don't let it sidetrack you. Now, you know, when the apostles uh, were beaten and imprisoned and then brought before the council in Acts chapter 4 and 5, they were threatened not to speak in the name of Jesus anymore. And I love to say this to my boys. We're going through Acts. And I say, so when they let them go, what did they do? And they say, they preached the word. <laughs> yes, they didn't let the opposition face them. They knew that God was the builder of the church and the great gatherer of the harvest and the great redeemer of souls, and that He was going to accomplish His purposes. I hope that you'll be encouraged this morning to think about your own life, your own place in Jesus' kingdom, in the kingdom of God. I hope that the Lord will encourage us and empower us to listen to the instructions. The universal obligations, the abundant opportunities, the inevitable opposition, and ultimately the differing outcomes that he is in control with. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we do pray that you would give us grace to take these things and to hide them deep in our hearts, to meditate on them. We pray, Lord, that you would give us your spirit to take your word and to quicken it in us, to instruct us, to change us. We pray that you would give us hearts that are burdened for the lost who are all around us. We pray that you would make this church an evangelistic church. We pray, our God, that many would come to know you through the ministry of the word preached in this congregation and through the ministry of the members of this church as they go out. And reach out to those with whom you have placed them, around whom you have placed them on a daily basis. Our God, please give us wisdom and boldness and love and trust, knowing that you are the one working in us for your glory. So our God, would you please use us? And would you please, Lord, send out laborers into the harvest from among us, from our homes, from our children, and from ourselves. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.